these countries are extremely diverse. You've got really plural societies with groups from all different religions, all different ethnicities. It's partly what makes these countries so engaging and, and fascinating. So they've always struggled with diversity and how to manage that. And when it comes around to the internet, this all has to be done again in a, in a new sphere. Has a decade of growing prosperity tamed intercommunal violence in Asia? A new report offers reason for hope and cause for vigilance. This week on In Asia from the Asia Foundation. I'm John Rieger. And I'm Tracy Yang. Using comprehensive country-by-country data, the state of conflict and violence in Asia 2021 paints a cautiously optimistic picture of declining violence. But a new chapter on social media offers some sharp words of warning for the future. Here now to talk about some of these findings are the Asia Foundation's Adam Burke, principal author of the report, and internet researcher Sarah Oh, who contributed to the social media chapter. Adam and Sarah, welcome to Asia. Hi, John. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Adam, since 2017, we've seen open warfare in Marawi in the Philippines, the exodus of the Rohingya fleeing state violence in Myanmar, the subsequent coup in that country, and, of course, the continuing violence in Afghanistan. Yet this new report finds that overall levels of violence in Asia have gone down in the past decade. How can that be? What I found really interesting is when you look at the levels of violence year on year, from 2010-11 right through till last year, you see across the region a general slow increase in deaths from combat. And I I was looking at this thinking, I bet that the greatest number of these casualties is, is from Afghanistan. So I just took Afghanistan out of the stats and you see a totally different trend. Deaths from armed combat, from war, go down almost year on year, right the way through, and go down significantly from some 10,000 or something per year down to a couple of thousand. So this is a significant trend. How do you explain this trend? When you start to pick it apart, what you have seen across much of Asia over the last 10 years is a significant rise in, in economic growth and in state capacity and the ability of states to govern. These days, there isn't much war between countries. So it's mostly what you can call subnational conflict. And these are ethnic conflicts that often bubble away for many decades in in corners of countries across Asia, from Mindanao in the Philippines, through to Baluchistan in Pakistan, and and many, many places in between. So you've seen some reforms that have enabled these areas to be governed more effectively in one or two places, but you've also seen quite a lot of suppression, actually, which in many cases, in most of these cases, is not going to solve the problem. The the problems are much more deep-seated than that, but they're bubbling away and causing fewer casualties. That, that's what the data seems to show. So this year's conflict and violence report, for the first time, has a section on conflict and social media. What changed? Obviously, what's changed on the surface is that social media is a much bigger thing now than it has been in the past. But also there are deeper trends at play here, which social media is exacerbating. These countries are extremely diverse. You've got really plural societies with groups from all different religions, all different ethnicities. It's partly what makes these countries so engaging and and fascinating. So they've always struggled with diversity and how to manage that. And when it comes around to the internet, this all has to be done again in in a new sphere. Sarah, you studied hate speech trends in Myanmar prior to the coup. And you've also worked at Facebook studying social media and conflict. Does social media look or work differently in Asia, or is it the same but more so? How does it how does it compare to what we see in the West? It's dramatically different. I think not just between the West and Asia, but even by country, within countries. In Myanmar, the top 
10 Facebook pages in the first phase of what we, uh, many people call the connectivity revolution, were news outlets. It was BBC Burmese. It was politicians. Uh, So people were glued to their phones trying to follow what was happening in the country. You can imagine if you have actors who want to spread propaganda, that that suddenly becomes a very vulnerable place, very fertile. The classic example is how the military and conservative Buddhist monks went to Facebook to justify acts of violence targeting the Rohingya minority and Muslims across the country. A single post could invoke deep fear among entire communities. So that offline effect of online speech was very deeply felt in the Myanmar context. And we've seen that ripple across other countries in the region as well. Your fellow report contributor, Maria Ressa, who just won a Nobel Peace Prize for her activism in the Philippines, warns that bad actors are using social media in Asia as a testbed for techniques to disrupt the West. Do you agree with that? I do. I mean, we see everything Maria has talked about, and I will say she was one of the early voices to call attention to what was happening in Asia. I remember when she came to California at a conference at Stanford many years ago and was raising the alarm bells about political speech targeting journalists like her. Can you give us an example? I think the, yeah, the Philippines and how we've seen supporters of Duterte target journalists. It's very misogynistic, reputation-based attacks. That's a tactic we've seen almost in every country where there's a populist leader questioning scientific evidence around misinformation, I think also uh, stems from these same patterns that we see in the Philippines and Asia. So speaking of misogyny, Adam, you argue that gender-based violence may now be the single most common form of violence in Asia. That's shocking. Are those solid numbers? I I thought you might pick that one out. (laughs) Uh, How how did that get put together? I think it's unquestionable that the number of casualties I was talking about earlier from wars is relatively low across the region, except for Afghanistan, whereas the levels of gender-based violence are horrific and, and remain a significant problem. So how does social media play into this problem? Well, it fits across the board. You've seen across the world how the initial expectations of social media would be a great liberating force that enables people to mobilize, to speak to each other, to take forward issues, doesn't necessarily mean that that mobilization and those issues are are positive or or benign. So you have groups of misogynists organizing through social media. We've certainly got that in the United States. Right. Um, you, You see it on gender issues and you see it, of course, on political issues. And you've seen it particularly against Muslim minorities. This has been the case in South Asia, in Southeast Asia. What I find very interesting is to compare different countries here. So you've seen campaigns against Muslim communities in India. There have been riots. There have been communal attacks. Politicians were unquestionably stoking some of the concerns for populist gain to build a support base. Sri Lanka is another example where you saw some similar trends and traits. But in both of those countries, politicians also got involved in trying to stem the violence, whereas Myanmar that moderating force was far weaker. And you saw that level of violence actually, in some cases, being aided and abetted directly by the state, particularly against Rohingya in Rakhine State, but elsewhere in the country too. You look at how those riots were 
held back. And often it was civil society, it was civil groups, NGOs, local leaders, religious leaders who got together on their own and pushed back against the extremists and, and stopped them really taking over the whole public sphere. In Thailand, you saw whispers of ultra-conservative extremist religious figures and community leaders trying to push against Muslim communities in a pretty xenophobic way. And it was rapidly stamped out by the state. Actually, it was the government that came in and decided that they weren't going to have any of that. And it stopped it. So you can see how actors can come in and do something about it. Let's take a look at the social media companies themselves. Sarah, the Facebook Oversight Board was in the news just today, blasting Facebook for its lack of transparency with the board. This is Facebook's own board. Can social media companies be expected to police themselves? It's a big task. I think what we really need to hold all companies to account to is really high levels of transparency and accountability, especially when it comes to human rights, the experience of minority groups on their platform. You know, we're talking a lot about South Asia and Southeast Asia. For a long time, it was really hard for groups from these countries to engage the companies. And, you know, that's part of the work that I did when I joined Facebook. I think that is a important bar to set and something we really need to all work together to see through. Last question, Adam. Is the latest edition of the Conflict and Violence Report optimistic or pessimistic? Oh, you put me on the spot there, John. I could be sneaky and say that it's not one or the other, but I'd like to be optimistic, to be honest. The Asia Foundation's Adam Burke and researcher Sarah Oh. Thank you both for joining us today on In Asia. It's great to be here. I've enjoyed it. So lovely to chat. Thanks for hosting this. That's our show for this week. If you'd like to learn more about the state of conflict and violence in Asia, Adam has crafted a concise introduction in this week's In Asia blog, where you can also link to the full report. It's important work. And as always, we invite you to subscribe to the In Asia podcast by pointing your browser to In Asia, one word, and clicking as appropriate. Until next time, I'm John Rieger. And I'm Tracy Yang. Thanks for listening.